They have put a lot of time into practice and, and learning. Some of them have uh, played instruments for a while, and some are new and uh, are singing. And so uh, it takes a lot of practice and a lot of courage to stand up and to, to play uh, before us this morning. So it's a thrill to have this, um, them leading us this morning. I want to, uh, to say as we begin a, a kind of a joy, but also a, a word of gratitude and thanks. Um, as you saw when you came in, if, you have, if you're not, if, if you're a first-time guest, you wouldn't have noticed this, but the rest of us, uh, the carpet has finally been replaced. And so, um, and this is, I mean, we still have a few things that we're still tweaking and a few things we have to adjust with some lights and stuff, but, but this is really kind of the last piece on what has been months of, of some significant things that we've done in the space. And if you're here regularly with us in worship, you've seen it as a piecemeal project. You know, you saw the projectors months ago and then the paint and a few of the things we've done in here and now the carpet. Uh, it's funny with, with some of, and some of you may be back, but as our northern friends are starting to come back who left in April, they left a very different space. And so they're kind of seeing it all at once, and it's kind of fun to, to see their reaction. But, but I want to say a, a word of thanks because there's a lot of, a lot of folks that have invested to, to make a lot of this possible. Uh, a lot of you, your giving, your support, your second mile contributions, uh, you're giving to the general budget of the church as we meet costs and, and expenses and ministry investments that we've committed to, we do our best to invest what, what you give faithfully into ministry. Um, Bill Hancock says all the time, who's our treasurer, he says we're not a bank. We're not just storing it up. We try to invest what God gives us. And so thank you for your contributions to this, these projects. Um, and then extra things that have happened, the, um, the special concerts and, and ladies' teas, and, and I'm forgetting something. Oh, the, the Ruby Tuesday's gift backs and things, um, gift cards. These are ways that you've contributed. So I want to say um, a word of thanks. And then also to those who have invested their time in lighting projects and in helping things get moved around and in picking out carpet and paint colors and, and just a lot of work that goes into it. So um, we're thankful, and we certainly are right to, to kind of celebrate this. And we're starting um, a pool, if you want to pay $5 in, for the first person to spill on the new carpet. <laughs> so... Um, you can pick whoever you think it's going to be. Yes, you, don't volunteer. We're not asking you to spill on the carpet. Um, and, I'm, and just in case anybody, I'm kidding. We're not taking up a pool, at least not that you know of. So, um, but anyway, but I do want to say in all seriousness, because f for me, I don't know how you approach it, but, but for me, when things like this happen, whether it's, it's kind of like when you get a brand new car and you're paranoid about the first scratch. I don't know if anybody does that, but, you know, you get the new car and you park away in the parking lot. You don't want the new scratch. And once it gets the scratch, you're like, okay, you know, so it's happened. Um, and when we buy new cars, Tony's usually hit the first scratch in a week or two. So um, I don't know who's clapping so loud for that. But, um, but, but, but here's what I want to say. We're not going to... Um, it's carpet. We want it to be nice. These are carpet squares. Um, Aldridge Carpeting kind of helped us do the, you know, figure out what we wanted. And these are carpet squares. We don't want to stain them, but we did it so that we can replace sections if we need to. We're going to continue to do life together. If you brought coffee in before, you can bring coffee in now, okay? 
you can do that. We're still going to have dinners in here. We're still going to use the space. It's not a museum. So don't be overly paranoid. Just know if you are the first spill, I will laugh at you. So, and if it's me, I won't tell you. So um, I want to just say some words of thanks. Now, we uh, this morning uh, turned in our scripture to Deuteronomy chapter 34. And that's found in your, your Old Testament. It's found in the beginning of your, of your scriptures. Fifth book of the Bible. It is the... It's often described as Moses' farewell speech. That's how Deuteronomy is sometimes labeled, because it is the end of Moses' journey with his people, both figuratively and literally. And the 34th chapter, which we read from this morning, is the last chapter of Deuteronomy, and it, it appropriately shares with us the, the details of the last experiences of Moses' life. So we begin Deuteronomy 34, starting at verse 1. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. Let me just pause there for a moment. Get the mental image. Those of you that have um, hiked in the mountains or stopped at scenic overlooks up at high elevations, you know, Moses is getting a chance to see with his eyes the vastness of the land that God had promised, the land that the people had been waiting to receive and to receive. So, so that's kind of the scene. I, I kind of picture it as Moses on the, the high place overlooking this, this promise that God is about to deliver to his people. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross over into it. Hear that again. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 124 years old when he died. Yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Brothers and sisters, may God add his blessing here to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, speak. Speak to us wherever we are. Meet us in the place of our need, of our struggle, of our uncertainty, of our joy, and begin to continue to shape, mold, and create in us anew hearts and lives for the image of Christ, in the image of Christ. Do with us as you will. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. All I needed to learn in life, I learned in kindergarten. You've heard the saying, you've read the book, you've seen the posters. Everything, all the valuable lessons, everything I needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten. And we laugh at that, but, but we understand that there is so much truth 
through the fact that we learn so many important lessons about life, about our experiences, about relationships um, in those first formative years of, of our experiences, of our memories. And one of the things that we learn very, very early, age three, age four, age five, is this profound lesson. Life is not fair. Life is not fair. How many of us remember being exclaiming that? It's not fair only to have our mother or father, grandparent, friend, teacher say life's not fair. We learn that very, very early. And if you doubt that, go to a playground where little ones are playing or sit in a classroom or any place where, small no- where large numbers of, of young kids are, and eventually you're going to hear these profound and significant words. No fair. That's no fair. We've probably all spoken them in our life, and we certainly hear them. In those moments when, as, as children, we have those interactions or those experiences in which we internalize an injustice has been done, that we have not gotten something we deserved, somebody has not treated us the way uh, that they should, uh, the brakes have not gone our way, whatever the experience is. And, and, you know, we see in kids the variety of ways that that gets reacted to. Anger, temper tantrums, um, sadness, tears, uh, just, just so many ways that, that we respond. In fact, if you go to the Internet and you Google no fair, and then you go to the top and you click images, you'll see a bunch of pictures of kids you know, with tears in their eyes, or face puffed up because, you know, they're having their moment, stomping their feet, exclaiming the injustice that has been done. And I would venture to say we all know the experience because it doesn't change. Our reaction to it changes, for better or worse, but the experience is, I think, lifelong. I remember I was about 12 years old, I think, to the best of my memory. It was middle school. I know that. We had gone, Mom and one of my brothers and I, I don't even remember which brother it was, we'd gone to Publix. Mom had gone to, to pick up some things. And, and I, to the, the details are, are fuzzy. But to the best of, of my recollection, I had gone, I'd left the store and I'd gone to one of the other stores in the strip mall. And it was a pet store. There was something else that I wanted to go check out. So I did. And while I was gone and, and Mom and my younger brother were shopping, she bought him something, a drink, candy, I don't remember what. But when I caught back up with them, I realized that she had bought something for him, but had not bought anything for me. And that was a no-fair moment. And I refused to get into the car when they wanted to leave. Did I mention I was about 12 years old? Um, <laughs> I refused. Not only did I refuse to get into the car, I walked home from Publix that day. I would not get in. I walked through the woods and down the back roads and walked all the way home because I was protesting an injustice that had been done. I was making it sure that she knew I was not going to tolerate this unfairness that had happened. And I'm here to tell you that I can tell you this story simply because my mother, in one of her many, many instances of embodying grace and mercy, 
did not tell my father what I had done. <laughs> or I would have died that day. <laughs> because in my household, mom was not the disciplinarian. She was gentle, tender, she compassionate to a fault. Um, dad was the hammer. And the hammer would have come down. And I remember that somewhat with some embarrassment because certainly it was an incredibly immature way to handle a ridiculous um, sense of, of being uh, treated unfairly. But, but as I reflect on that, I recognize that, that we all still have our, you know, the, the only difference between the 12-year-old me and me now is the way I deal with those no-fair moments. And... I still stomp my feet and have temper tantrums. I just don't let you see them anymore. Tony sees them sometimes. Yeah, thank you. You can be quiet now. Um, dear. Um, but, but we have those. You have them. I have them. I think it's a universal experience. Sometimes we're justified in it, and sometimes we're not. Sometimes the no fair and the we bring on ourselves, and sometimes it's imposed upon us. But, but it's the reality of, of life. And if you do go, and, and I say this all the time because I, I, I research things and I, I Internet search things all the time. And if you, you type in kind of injustice or unfairness, you can find website after website that is geared to help you make things right, to help you right a wrong. You know, if somebody's cheated you out of money, how to get that right. Or if somebody hasn't uh, lived up to their obligations, how, to, how to, to make things right. Or if, you, you know, you haven't gotten your taxes or whatever, you haven't gotten a prize that you should have won. There's website after website that will help you right the, the scales, if you will, tip the balance in your favor when injustice has happened. But what you don't find very much of is the sources, the sites, the guidance, the information for how do we handle it when we've experienced the no-fair moment and there's nothing you can do about it. There's just nothing you can do to make it right. There's nothing you can do to change the circumstances. You have to just accept it and move through it, deal with it, or as we say sometimes, get over it. How do we deal with those moments? Because I think when we read Deuteronomy 34, at least through my lens, through my humanity, through my imperfection, when I read it, I see a great no-fair moment for Moses. I see a moment in which I think Moses had a right, and again, this is my humanity, to stomp his feet at God and say, this is not fair. Because you remember the fullness of Moses' story that has brought him to this point, to this overlook, to this scenic view of the promised land. Remember that this is the culmination of 40 years of dealing with these stubborn, obstinate, hard-headed Israelites whom he had led out of the land of Egypt. Remember, Moses was for 40 years a shepherd in the wilderness. He had a family. He'd settled down. He'd made a new life for himself after he had fled Egypt. He was fine with what he was doing until God showed up. And God encounters Moses. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, you can read about that encounter at the burning bush. But you remember, Moses didn't want any part of it. He was more than content to have God pick somebody else for the job. But God persisted, and Moses was obedient. 
and he went into Egypt. And first he had to convince his own people to take a step of faith and to be willing to step out of the life they've known and the slavery that's held them bondage and to step out into the unknown. And there was no easy task there. But once he convinced them, he had the even harder challenge of having to stand before the Pharaoh, one of the most powerful men in the world, and go back and forth to, to, to convince Pharaoh with the help of God to let his people go. And that culminated with that exodus out of Egypt, out of the land of Goshen. But, of course, it doesn't stop there. Because first he had to contend with a Pharaoh army that ta- takes after him, that changes their mind, or Pharaoh's army, the Egyptian army. And then once they're through the Red Sea, they continually had to contend with other nations, other peoples that were not happy about having this huge mass of, of people passing through their lands and challenging their rule, if you will. So it was an ongoing battle with other nations. It was an ongoing battle with his own people because they were fickle and hard-headed. They rarely trusted in God and they rarely trusted in Moses. And because of their own choices, that journey that maybe should have been a year or two would take 40. And over and over, Moses provides leadership and Moses endures and Moses is faithful and Moses continues to, to step into the role that God has called him for, all for the promise of what God had said his people would receive, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan, the promised land. And they finally get there. They're finally on the, the brink of stepping into that, arriving at their destination, of, of coming to the culmination of this long journey. And God said, Moses, come up here. Take a look. See how beautiful it is. See how expansive it is. It is everything they have promised. And oh, by the way, you're never stepping foot on it. Your journey ends here tonight, this day. And verse 3, Moses sees the land. And verse 4, Moses dies. And it is to me one of the great no-fair moments in all the Scripture. Now understand, we have no insight into how Moses responds to it. We have no insight into Moses' feelings of this because the Scriptures don't tell us anything about what Moses thought, what Moses said, about the dialogue Moses may have had with God over this experience. It's one of those things we'll have to wait to glory to find out and ask Moses ourselves. And maybe Moses by this point had come to peace with it because if we're faithful to the story, we've got to remember the reason Moses didn't step into the promised land is because he had had a moment of disobedience. If you go back and you read Numbers chapter 20, you read that Moses did something God had told him not to do. He'd struck a rock a second time in order to bring forth water. And that was not what God had told him to do. And Moses hadn't trusted him. And God said, because of that act of disobedience, you won't receive the inheritance. And so Moses knew it was coming. But have you ever had an experience in your life when you were rightfully punished for something you'd done wrong, but you felt that the punishment didn't fit the crime? You were punished a little too harshly. Yeah, some of you are really nodding your head. It was too much, too strong, unfair. I, I read that and I think it was all of Moses' faithfulness. That seems so harsh and so difficult and so demanding of God for this punishment. And that's my humanity reading into it. I think it's interesting that the scripture says that Moses' eyes were still strong. His body was not weak. And I think that's the writer's way of saying Moses wasn't quite ready to go. But his time had come to an end. And the scriptures don't tell us how Moses reacted to that. But they give us 
an overall picture of Moses' life and his faithfulness. And it is a positive, overwhelmingly admirable picture of Moses. But the challenge I face, I read into this, is not so much trying to figure out how Moses responded, but rather in wondering, how do I respond? How do I respond to the no fair moments? Because if it happened to Moses, it certainly is going to happen to me. It's certainly going to happen to you. The moments when life feels like it kicks you in the teeth. The moments when things do not go the way that you'd expected them to go. The journey does not end the way that you had thought it would end. The promise doesn't come to fulfillment the way you had prayed that it would come to fulfillment. The times when the marriage isn't what you thought it was going to be. It may be intact, but it's just not what you dreamed and hoped for. Or the job that you had invested your, your life into, that you'd blood, sweat, and tears, that you'd worked and you'd worked hard and you, you, know, you had the pension and you had the savings and, and all of a sudden the company downsizes and you're unemployed. Or the retirement that you and your spouse had saved for, had put money away for. The golden years when you could enjoy family and traveling and, and the freedom that comes with that when when that's turned upside down because of physical ailments or health crisis or death? How do we deal with the moments in our lives when we want to stomp our feet at God and say, this is no fair? How do we hold fast to faith? Because, see, that's what we do know about Moses. I don't know how Moses reacted to this moment. I don't know how Moses had reacted earlier when God had pronounced this judgment. But what I do know is that Moses lived faithfully until the last of his days. Until these moments, overlooking the promised land, he continued to be faithful. He continued to step into the places God had called him and to do the things that God had asked of him. And so my challenge is not so much trying to figure Moses out, because that's a speculative endeavor, but is to ask myself, How do I figure me out and step into faith in the moments when the destination isn't what I'd hoped or prayed or dreamed or wished it to be? How do you deal with those moments when life is not fair? And there are a couple overall truths I think we need to hold on to this morning that we need to to understand. And they're not necessarily directly from Deuteronomy 34, but I think they're, they're scriptural truths that we see in the, in the larger meditant narrative of the scriptures, of the, of the larger story from, from Genesis to Revelation. Because here's what I'm always wanting to upend with you. Here's what I'm always wanting to challenge in you, what I'm always wanting to, to, to redirect in you. And that is the tendency for all of us to buy into this theology and this idea that faith is a protector and an insulator of the dif- from the difficulties of life. That if we believe in Jesus and we have strong faith, bad things aren't going to happen. It's unbiblical. It just is. But we hear it and we see it and you're bombarded with it sometimes. And we need to, to, to understand that's not the story. From Genesis to Revelation, that's not the promise. And all you have to do is start to take inventory of of the narrative of the people of the Scriptures and and read their stories. 
I started to do this and started to think through this yesterday. And you go back to, to Genesis and you read the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph and the, the, the multicolor coat, the coat of many colors that, that his father Jacob gives him. Joseph, who when he comes into Egypt after being sold into slavery by his brothers, talk about a no fair moment, he becomes very well respected in the house of Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife takes notice of him and she makes, she makes a move on him. She, she tries to, to engage him in inappropriate and unethical and immoral behavior, and Joseph resists. Remember, he fled from her. He would not give in to the temptation. He's faithful. He acts in an ethical and an obedient way, and where does it get him? Locked up in prison. Now, yes, I know his story turns out wonderfully, but he was in prison for a long time for doing the right thing. It's a no-fair moment. Or if you know the story of Tamar, who had to resort to some very questionable behavior in order to see justice and what was right done in her life. Or the story of Job, which is the greatest no-fair moment in, in the Old Testament. Or turn our sights to the New Testament. I'm just picking out a few. We could do this all day long. I think about Paul, who had the ability to heal people. I mean, he had the ability to heal people from their infirmities and their afflictions. Yet Paul says that he had his own affliction that God did not remove from him, a thorn in his own flesh, that God said, essentially, you need to live with this, to depend upon me. That, to me, seems like a large no-fair moment. Or Stephen, who stoned for his faith. Or the disciples, all of which except John, who would follow Jesus, preach the gospel, and, oh, by the way, die for it. And then, of course, there's Jesus himself who in his love and his mercy ends up on a cross. So please, please don't buy in to the narrative that says that Jesus somehow protects us from all the troubles of life. Jesus says in this life you will have troubles, but be of good cheer. Why? Not because I'm going to keep you from it, because I've overcome the world and I'm going to be with you in it. So how do we hold fast to our faith when those moments come? And I think here's some principles, here's some truths that we need to hold on to. One is, life is not about the destination. It is absolutely about the journey. That God, who is with us in the midst of the journey, and sometimes that doesn't take us to the places that we want to go or the places we thought that we would go or the experiences we thought we'd have, but that doesn't negate the value in the steps that we take in getting wherever that place is. Too often we become so focused on the end, on what we want, that we miss the value of what God is doing in the process and in the experiences. And even in the disappointments. Even in the heartache, even in the hurts, even in, in the experiences that, that, that we wish would not happen. We miss that God's present in, the, in that. And that God redeems that. And God brings good out of that. And God shapes us and speaks into our lives in the midst of that. I'm not saying causes it, but is at work for good in the, the midst of it. And, and that's a hard truth to grasp, and sometimes we only see that in a rearview mirror. I will tell you, if you are in those tough places right now, and you're having your own no-fair moments, I'm not sitting there saying that you're always going to see God in the midst of that. But I do believe sometimes in time, actually always in time, we can even look back and see God in the midst of the difficult difficulties of our journeys and in the steps that we're taking. I, I've told 
this story before, so I'm not going to rehash it, my, my own personal story, Tony and I, but, but we had some incredibly painful moments in ministry. We had some experiences in which everything went completely opposite to the way that we had dreamed, the way we had thought, the way I was convinced God was going to work. I had experiences I would not live through again if you paid me, or at least I would not choose to live through again. If you paid me, I mean, I was a 32-year-old pastor sitting in a doctor's office being diagnosed with shingles because I was so stressed out. I wouldn't go through that again for anything. But I'll tell you what, I also wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it because I believe that God used it. I don't think God caused it. Some of what I went through was my own fault. Some of what we went through was done to us. But God used it. And I've said before, I'm not, I'm the furthest thing from a perfect pastor you're going to find. But I know that I'm a better pastor because of what I went through there. I know I'm a better follower of Jesus because I went through there. I know God was working in those experiences to strengthen a resolve and a faith in me to bring me to a better place. Now, I'll tell you, I only saw it in a rearview mirror. I did not see it at the moment. I had a lot of God, what the heck are you doing conversations. I had a lot of temper tantrums where I did not want to get in the car as a 32-year-old man. But God was there. We have to remember God in the journey. Moses didn't step into the promised land, but God never left him in the midst of the wandering in the wilderness. Nor does God leave us. The other thing that I think we need to hold fast to is sometimes those closed doors, sometimes those missed opportunities or, or moments that don't live up to our hopes or dreams or expectations, God uses to redirect our vision, to focus us in new ways, to see doors and opportunities we might have overlooked because we were so fixed on where we thought we wanted to go that we missed the opportunity or the, opportun or the, the doors that were open of where we should go. And I was thinking about that, and I turned back to the New Testament book of Acts into the journeys of Paul and his missionary journeys. And in Acts chapter 16, I want you to hear these, ver these verses, these words, beginning at verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now, we have no idea what exactly that means, what Paul's what it was that God did to, con to, to keep them. But whatever it was, they didn't go where they thought they were going to go. It says, when they came to the border of, of Myasia, they tried to enter Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So again, they were on a way and they came to a place they thought they were supposed to go, to a destination they believed God was leading them. And oh, by the way, that's not where they were going to end up either. So it says, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I want you to hear what happens there. Paul thinks he's going here, and that door closes. Paul thinks he's going here, and that door closes. And when those, door closes, when those doors close, Paul receives a vision. He hears the voice of God saying, it's not there. It's not there. I want you over here. And I believe God does that for us not as the instigator or the creator of the difficulties of our lives, but to say, I'm going to work in the midst of it, and I'm going to get you where I need you to be if you hold fast to faith, 
if you trust. That's what Moses did through the journey. He trusted in God, even in the difficulties of it. That's what we're called to do. Do we have the kind of faith that we can trust in God even when we have to let go of what we thought we wanted or where we thought we were going to go when we have to experience relinquishment of letting go of one dream or one hope or one desire in order to move in new directions and trust God in new paths. That's our challenge. That's the kind of trust that Moses had. That's the kind of trust and faith we're called to have. But it is not easy. It is not easy, especially when we just want to stomp our feet, puff up our cheeks and shake our hands at God and say, this is no fair. But I believe the strongest of faith, the deepest of faith, the most sustaining of faith is not birthed in the best experiences of life, but in trusting in God in the most difficult experiences of life. Understand when things come our way that we didn't wish for, hope for, or plan for, it's not God removing his blessings. Because God's promise is never that you're going to receive everything you want in life and life's going to be smooth. That's never the promise of God. The promise of God is that I'm going to be with you in the midst of it. The promise of God is the scripture that John read this morning, that nothing separates you from my love. Nothing separates you from my presence. Nothing separates you from my grace. That's the promise. The deepest, the strongest of faith is born when we can trust God in those moments when we're not stepping into the promise that we thought we were going to receive and trusting that God has a better plan. You know, here's the thing, and I'll leave with this. On that mountain, God or Moses stepped into the promised land. It just wasn't the promised land he expected. It was a far greater blessing. It was a far greater gift. I believe Moses saw it. I believe he trusted in it. I believe his confidence was always in the Lord. I pray that I can have that kind of confidence, that kind of trust, that kind of faith. I pray it for me, and I pray it for you. Let us go now to the Lord. Gracious God, we just ask that you help us in the journey, in our weak moments, in our uncertain moments, in our angry moments, in our temper tantrum moments. Help us to trust in you and to just hold fast to our faith and to trust in your wisdom, your will for our lives, even when we don't see it so clearly or understand it very deeply. We pray this kind of faith in the name of Christ. Amen. I want to prepare now our hearts for communion. And remember, remember, Jesus shared this meal with his disciples. And the very next day, he'd be nailed to a cross. Jesus would gather before that event in the Garden of Gethsemane. The scriptures say that he prayed with such a passion, with, with such a desperation, I think with such a fear, that he would sweat blood and he would cry, God, Father, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Because he trusted, even when it didn't seem fair, that God's plan was greater and God's purpose was deeper. And so he went with faithfulness. And because he did, 
we can step in faithfulness with the promise of life, the promise of his presence because he has overcome death. And so we remember today that Jesus took bread with his disciples and he gave thanks to God and he broke it. And he gave it to them and said, this is my body. It's broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you do it, every time you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup and he gave thanks to God and he gave it to them and said, take and drink all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant. It's poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. And so we remember and we give God thanks for his presence. And we hold fast to our faith. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, bless these gifts, bread and juice, that for us they would be the embodiment of your holy presence that is with us always, now and forever. Be for us the strength, the sustainer, the enabler in our journey, that we would walk with faith, being blessed by your presence and seeking to live out your love. And may we always, in all things, give you the glory, give you the honor, and give you the praise now and forever. Amen. I invite now our servers to take their places. In a few moments, invite you to come and to Receive communion. Two stations in the front. There's one in the center on the back. You can go in any direction. We receive communion by intention to take the bread and to dip it into the juice. And then the altar is open for prayer. You may return to your seats and pray. You may stay where you are the entire time and reflect. But receive a gift. And it's the promise of Christ's presence. The bread and the juice reminds us of Jesus who is with us now and always. This is his table. This is his gift. This is his promise. As you're ready, brothers and sisters, you're invited to come and to receive. Here's my heart, oh Lord. Here's my heart, oh Lord. Here's my heart, oh Lord.
Lord, the truth of your promise is your presence. May that speak comfort, courage, trust, and faith into our hearts. And may we walk with you now and always in the promise of Christ. We pray in his holy name. Amen.